0: Hey, thanks for listening
1: in to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond, Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Thomas J. Ord. Hello.
2: Hey, thanks so much for the opportunity uh, for this conversation, Lauren.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for being here. Uh, Tom is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He's a best-selling and award-winning author, having written or edited more than 25 books. He directs a doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary and the Center for Open and Relational Theology. He's a 12-time faculty award-winning professor and teaches at multiple uh, institutions around the globe. He's known for his contributions to research on love, open and relational theology, science and religion, and the implications of freedom and relationships for transformation. So anything else you'd like to let our guests know about yourself? Or We're listeners. listeners, yeah.
2: Listening to that description, if I was uh, someone listening to this podcast, I'd think this guy can't settle on any one subject. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's interested in too many things, and that's probably right. My my interests are wide and varied. So how, tell me,
1: tell us a little bit like about your journey of faith, how you got into studying theology for living, so to speak.
2: Yeah, I grew up in a fairly conservative evangelical home in a little farming town in Washington state. Church was a really important part of our family life. And uh, I like to say I gave my heart to Jesus many times as a kid. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I also took uh, evangelism very seriously when I was in college. I was one of those people who uh, bugged you at the airport or door to door or on the street, you know, handing out pamphlets and things. (laughs) Um, Then my final year in college, I took a course in philosophy of religion. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, I, I read really smart people from other religious traditions, atheists, agnostics and um the fundamental reasons i have for had for believing in god didn't seem to make a lot of sense anymore wow and um uh, for the sake of intellectual honesty i became an atheist or at least an agnostic i called mm-hmm. myself an atheist yeah and um but it, for me for me turning away from belief in god wasn't Wasn't based on like a rebellious streak, or you know, like I I wasn't mad at the hypocrites in the church or something like that. For me, it was really an intellectual thing. It was, Hmm. you know, I have to have good reasons to believe there's a God, and the reasons I used to have, I now doubt. Um, So I was an atheist for a short period of time, but I eventually came to think that there is a God based primarily on two things at least then, it's kind of broadened yeah. now, but but then it was two things. One, I wanted to believe there was something like ultimate meaning in life, mm. and I couldn't believe in ultimate meaning if there wasn't something like a an ultimate source or ground for meaning that lots of people call God. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, I had this deep intuition, and I still have it today, that I ought to be a person who loved and that mm-hmm. other people ought to love that in some, some important and deep way that love was the answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I couldn't make sense of that intuition if there wasn't a source of love or an ultimate ground of love that most people call God. And so based on those two assumptions or beliefs or presuppositions I decided it was more plausible than not that there was a God, and that's basically where I'm at today. I I don't know with certainty there's a God, but I think it's plausible given various factors, arguments, experience, etc.
1: You know, you mentioned like your conservative uh, upbringing. Yeah. It, it, was that hard. Uh, I ask as someone who who underwent a, a similar journey. Uh, yeah. Was it hard for you to kind of live initially with that uncertainty of like? Because if your if your upbringing was anything like mine, I mean, there wasn't there wasn't much room for uncertainty. It was either you believe or you don't.
2: Hey, hard is too mild of a word. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, of oh, just incredibly difficult. And to be honest, it's it's still difficult today because I have lots of friends who're still conservatives. Uh, I'm I'm. I'm kind of a bridge builder kind of person. I live on Mm -hmm. the boundaries of lots of communities. Yeah. So, um, and I've got plenty of people who (laughs) want to correct me in the way I think. So yeah, it it was hard to say it mildly.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. You use the word bridge builder. I remember uh, someone, A pastor I met probably 12, 15 years ago used that word for me, and I'm I'm recognizing it's becoming a a prophecy in many ways for my my ministry and career. But uh, yeah, I think that's one of the things that I always found frustrating, and I imagine you did too, was that uh, folks would kind of dismiss my theological wanderings as... A lack of faith or the easy way out and I, yeah. I imagine if you're like me it's like no that's far more work, harder than just believing
2: yes that's right well and i was also maybe you're like this i was a person who who took the bible and theology and then philosophy later very seriously so it's not like i'm just winging it you know yeah yeah i could out argue a lot of people and so um, it was something that was deep and existential for me.
1: Uh, who were the? Maybe I'm I'm getting ahead of myself, maybe a little bit. That's right. <laughs> were the? Who was like a? Were there some thinkers, theologians that were influ, influential for you particularly? Like for me, I'd say Marcus Borg was someone who I'd say like in many ways saved my faith.
2: Yeah. No, I I can't like point to any one or two particular people. I I was very widely read. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, I wanted to take the intellectual questions very seriously. And even to this day, you know, leaps of faith or claims to, for blind faith do not appeal to me at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I would say it was a variety of people and a variety of experiences that kind of brought me down a journey away from my more fundamentalist, um, initial background.
1: What is, what is being a Christian now, like, what does that look like to you as opposed to you know, your early, early years?
2: Well, my primary goal in life, what I care most about, is living a life of love. Mm. That's what I think about, write about, that's the orienting concern of my life. And in some ways, that's not that much different than when I was a teenager and I was trying to be, you know, follow Jesus. Yeah. It's just that uh, over time, what it means to live a life of love has changed as I have changed, as my own perspectives have, I think, developed in a positive way.
1: Mm-hmm. How would, Can you elaborate on that? I'm curious to hear more on that.
2: In terms of what it means to live a life of love?
1: Yeah, then versus now.
2: Well, I think then living a life of love meant primarily, I love you, so I want you to go to heaven, so let me get you to say this prayer to accept Jesus into your heart. Yeah. That was kind of how I understood love. Mm-hmm. And it was maybe a little bit bigger. It, it, it would be, um, look, I want to love you by helping you, giving you some food, giving you some money so that you will see that I'm a good Christian and that mm-hmm. Jesus is really the right way to find salvation. So it was kind of like a, a bait and switch maybe in some ways.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so that was what love was at that time. Then... I mean, today, my love, I think of love as much deeper. I don't think, I happen to believe in an afterlife, but I don't think that's the primary purpose for Mm -hmm. living uh, like Jesus lives. I care about not only people 's souls but their bodies. I care about the environment and animals. Um, I try to integrate all dimensions of not only my life but society and civilization in the in the lens of love. We might say mm-hmm. so I have a much broader perspective of what love entails than I did when I was a eighteen year old
1: it's interesting. you say you love people 's bodies, not just their souls. Uh, uh, such a, I think, a, a, a distinct way of saying so much of what the theology of, at least as I would say it, conservative Christianity is about. It's like, we love your soul, but we're just, nah, your body, whatever.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. There's a lot of uh, uh, Gnosticism, implicit Gnosticism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They wouldn't say it quite like right. that, but it, it amounts to that.
1: Yeah. Talk about a spiritual practice you've developed or found meaningful?
2: Well, maybe two come most quick to mind. I'm a hiker and photographer. I spend a lot of time on the trails in the backcountry, talking with animals, spending time in nature. That's become a really important part of my life. And not just the time in nature, but the artistic element as well as a photographer. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one important practice. Um, On a daily basis, I have a practice of breathing prayer in which I breathe in symbolically God Mm -hmm. and breathe out symbolically love. Mm
0: -hmm. And so
2: I'll just think about God and then think about love. And after I do that for a little bit, then I'll sort of set my intentions for the day, what I'm planning to do, maybe some struggles or arguments i've had with family members or facebook or something <laughs> <laughs> and i'll just try to set my intentions and say okay i want to do this different i want to help this person i want to write this book or whatever that's that's a, a big part of my daily practice
1: awesome awesome uh i was going to ask
2: you what part of the country do you live in Then, where you hike so much i live in southern idaho uh, oh, okay which is one of the best places to live if you like to hike. Two-thirds of the state is publicly owned, and so there's lots of places to go, and you're not on private property.
1: <laughs> that's good. Oh, well, great. Uh, let's talk about your role as the uh, kind of one of your things, I guess, I suppose what you're known for, or one of the things you're known for is open relational theology. And you're the director, is that correct, of the Center for Open Relational Theology? That's
2: right. Yeah, that's correct.
1: Yeah. So – um Let's talk a little bit about give me a, a broad definition i guess for for myself and for our listeners
2: yeah, let me start with relational yeah um relational open relational theology not only believes that we are relational beings who live in a relational world but also that God is relational and uh If you're like me and you come from a fairly pietistic background where, you know, you talk about loving Jesus and and having a personal relationship with God, the idea that God is relational fits really nicely because Mm -hmm. a relational God is interacting with you. This God is happy when you do well and disappointed when you do poorly. And um, it's the God described by most of the Bible who's interacting with society it surprises lots of people to discover that most of the major Christian theologians in Christian history have not believed that God is relational. They believe that God is, to use the classic language, impassable. God Mm. is unaffected by anything that happens in the world. And so that's the relational element of open relational. The open part is a word that emerged in the mid-90s to talk about the future being open.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, uh, you, you can probably relate given that we have similar backgrounds. When, when I was a kid, uh, the theological fights were between the Armenians and the Calvinists. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the Calvinists believed that God had predestined and foreknown everything from the foundation of the world. And I was on the Western Armenian side, you know, mm-hmm. we believed in free will and, yeah. and I still believe in free will, but, We thought that God did not predestine everything, but in some strange way, God could foreknow everything that was going to happen. So Mm -hmm. what we thought was indeterminate, we thought that was up in the air, contingent, somehow God already knew exactly what was going to happen. Well, open theology says that, no, that's not the case. God can't know with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen in the future and the reason that God can't know that is that God also experiences time with us moment mm. by moment. So that's what the open part of open relational is about.
1: You know, the 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 words of like, God is imminent and also transcendent, I feel like relates here, because I think the classic kind of view of God would say that God is transcendent. You know, God is both imminent and transcendent. God transcends time and space and all that, but also is in some way imminent here with us now. Um, that's interesting. I didn't uh so one thing I was gonna ask you about um is kind of how this and I don't know if you remember, but I've actually asked you this on Twitter like a year ago or two.
2: Oh my memory's not that good, so you probably have to refresh it.
1: So because I remember I listened to a podcast, another podcast you did talking about this, and um I asked you, like, what's the similarity between um, open relational theology to some other similar type theologies, process theology, and then open theism? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. So the phrase open relational is a way to kind of have an umbrella under which there are a variety of options. So open Mm. and relational is this big umbrella, and then underneath that is process theology, openness theology, relational theology, some feminist theology, some Wesleyan theology, some etc., etc. So um, that's kind of just the big umbrella. Process and openness folks have a lot in in common. They're both open relational, for instance, Uh, but uh, most process theologians want to have... uh, want to think about God's power in such a way that God can't do some things that uh, some of the openness folks think that God can do. So probably the biggest difference between what I'll call classical open theology and classical process theology is the difference in how they think about God's power.
1: Can you you elaborate on
2: that? Sure. Um, The process tradition has been shaped by a variety of Issues. One of them being the problem of evil.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: If if God is so loving and if God's so powerful, then why doesn't God prevent the unnecessary suffering, the pointless pain, mm-hmm. the genuine evils of life? And uh, process folks through a variety of different ways have come to to believe that God simply can't prevent right. evil. <laughs> Now the openness folks, they uh, they tend to hear that and they want to say, hold on a second, I don't want to give up all the all the kind of uh, divine sovereignty sort of issues mm-hmm. that process people seem to give up, and so they typically will say things like God made a choice when creating the world not to intervene very often or. God has voluntarily decided to withdraw controlling power so that we have free will. So it's, um, I, I tend to think of it as a difference between God choosing to give freedom and allowing what happens versus God necessarily giving freedom and can't stop you know, what things are, are evil. I think that's kind of the biggest difference.
1: Now, if I understand your work correctly, I mean, you have a book titled this. Uh, yes. And reading some of the stuff...
2: Oh, you sent me prior to this. You would say that God
1: can't, right?
2: Yeah. So my view is kind of a strange in-between those two positions I just mentioned. Mm. I I would characterize it like this. Um, Some people believe that God voluntarily gives freedom and agency to creation and chooses to allow things to happen that God could stop if God Mm -hmm. wanted to. And so that's a I call it a voluntary self limitation view. Mm-hmm. On the other side of me, and this pertains to some process people, but not all. Some process people talk as if God is constrained or limited by external powers, like the God world relationship or um, metaphysical laws, or you know, to use mm-hmm. the language of our of our of many Christians, the principalities and powers. Yeah. Um, My view is kind of in between there. It says this, God really can't control anyone or anything, not because some external thing is constraining God, but also not because God voluntarily chooses not to. Guys say God can't because God's nature is self-giving, others-empowering love. And therefore, since that's God's very nature, God can't control others. So it's a kind of an argument about God's nature that, quote, constrains God's power rather than external constraints or uh, divine choice. Yeah, so it really
1: comes down to the character, if that's the right word, of who God is. Like. Yes. Yeah, like that's not God's purpose to control or not control then.
2: Right, right. If I got really technical, it would be something like this. In God's nature... Love comes logically before power. And since love comes first, God can't choose not to be loving. So love, we might say, limits God's power or constrains God's power. And that makes it the case that God can't single-handedly prevent evil. I was thinking
1: about, um, uh, are you familiar with Harold Kushner? Uh, Sure.
2: His book when it? bad Why? things yeah. happen to good people. Yeah.
1: Here's he the chapter where he talks about um, Job and the, the end of the book of Job. And I feel like that's his premise, that, that God can't. So I'm curious, like, I'm asking you to read into Kushner's work, I suppose, a bit. But uh, what's the similarity there?
2: I think the, there's lots of similarities. The biggest difference is that... Um, I come out very clearly about God's inability to single-handedly stop evil and that inability being linked to God's loving nature. Mm. Kushner's book is not quite so clear. You can read it and you're not quite sure why God can't stop this. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's the biggest difference. Yeah, well, this is good. Um,
1: So you you mentioned, or at least um, (laughs) some of the things I was reading about you, uh, you try to make clear that you feel like this fits with scripture, this kind of view, and also with science. Let's go, let's take the science first. Great. Um And I, I'll say as someone who like, one of the things I struggle with about modern Christianity is that I feel like, like it's cosmologically, like just incongruent with modern cosmology. <laughs> yeah. Uh Like I think about even some of like the modern worship songs we sing and, you know, it's like, God sitting on a throne, and we sing. Yeah. We sing that, and, I, and and I wonder. Like, uh, I feel like that's. But uh, maybe, maybe I'll jump ahead here. Um, well, maybe I'll ask this, and we can come. You can come back to this if you want to ask my. But I'm curious. Like, what does worship look like in a open and relational God? But if you want to <laughs> get, ask, answer the first part of the question, because I'm bl- getting a really loaded question here.
2: Yeah. Well, I think too much of Christian theology either ignores contemporary science or cherry picks the few things that sort of fit what they've already believed. And I'm a great believer that uh, Christian theology ought to be integrated with science. Mm -hmm. And that means that some of the cherished views of Christian theology in the past should be jettisoned, should be put aside. But it also means that uh, when we think about science, We have to uh, be open to uh, things that are metaphysical, you know, theological. And so it's not just that theology's given up everything in the age of science. Uh, There's a lot of, uh, we'll call it mechanistic or materialistic uh, philosophical assumptions in contemporary science that I think also should be jettisoned. So in this ongoing dialogue between science and theology, there's give and take on both sides Mm -hmm. if if we're going to have what I think is a plausible uh, conception or explanation of what goes on in reality.
1: Hmm. So, so, yeah, let me ask then that second part of the question then. Like, what yeah. does worship look like? Uh, I think that's, I'll speak as like a pastor, that's my biggest struggle, is like, yeah. what, what does worship look like, what does the worship setting look like when we're thinking about an open relational God?
2: Well, there's so many things I could say here, so I'm going to try to constrain myself to a few. (laughs) Um, One is that, you know, uh, I think a pastor ought to regularly remind people that when we read the scriptures, we can listen to what's being said and think of it in metaphorical rather than literal kind of way. So Mm -hmm. take the example you just gave, God on a throne. Right. I mean, I think God's omnipresent, so God's on every throne. <laughs> if we mm. would talk about it literally, sure. <laughs> but, uh, but I think that's a, a metaphor, or a symbol to talk about uh, God somehow being effective or active or, or powerful or influential. I mean, it can go a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. So that would be one thing I would say. Another thing, I think an open relational worship leader ought to bring in the majestic. Um, Um, aspects of contemporary science, because I think there's some incredibly beautiful and marvelous and motivating elements to it. You know, an obvious one is the immensity of the of the universe.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um,
2: That just is mind blowing. But um, even if we don't go sort of big, you can go micro and The amazing things that happen at the micro level of reality, these are awe-inspiring things. Mm -hmm. And if you're like me and you think God is present both in the micro and the macro, then uh, your praise becomes informed by scientific um, advancements that help, I think, both worship and science. Um and since I'm rattling things off let me yeah, give go. one a third one okay yeah, <laughs> This third this third one is very personal for me mm-hmm. Um so I believe in a relational god I think god is actually affected by what happens in our lives mm-hmm. I used to go to worship service and I'm from a low church tradition so mm-hmm. we rock and roll you know we, yeah. we we go we get after it Um but I used to go and think to myself you know, we're singing all these praise songs. We're talking about how God is holy and mighty and creator. And and I used to think to myself, well, God already knows all those things. Mm-hmm. Like, are we just reminding ourselves of these divine attributes? I mean, there's a place for that. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, is that just what worship is? Is just sort of uh, rehearsing our theology in, in song? Is that that's what... But then I started thinking to myself, hold on a second, if I really think God is affected by what goes on, that means God could be, God's own well-being could be enhanced Hmm. by my praise and worship. So if I'm, you know, I'm very discerning when I worship, like if there's lyrics up there, I don't believe, I don't mm-hmm. sing them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But if there are lyrics up there that I'm totally on board with, I go for it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm I'm worshiping with gusto. And if God is truly affected by what I do, that means God is getting, you know, jacked up by my getting jacked up in worship. And that means what I do really has an influence on the god of the universe and that motivates me to worship so
1: i I have to ask then thinking about this from like a conservative or traditional uh theological context like worship like i don't know if you've heard this like i've heard it said like god doesn't need our worship but i don't know this may be unfair but to me it almost came across as like narcissistic like God needs our worship like in a narcissistic way. <laughs> yes.
2: Right?
1: <laughs> Hopefully I don't get struck by lightning right now.
2: <laughs> well there was two two uh fundamental beliefs that were at odds with one another. Mm-hmm. You, know, you look at the Westminster Confession, for instance, and it says God created as a display of God's glory, because God wanted to be glorified. And it mm-hmm. sounds very narcissistic, like right. God saying, you know, tell me how great I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that, of course, doesn't fit with the idea that God doesn't need us. So yeah, well, there there's tension in theology there. Mm-hmm. And so what it oftentimes felt like to me in settings in which God was thought to be unaffected, it was more like God wanted us to worship because we needed to be obedient, almost slaves. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, we're cowering under this amazing and awesome God who could smite us at any moment if God mm-hmm. wanted to. Um, whereas I think of God first and foremost as love. I think of God as a friend. I think of God as someone with whom I can cooperate and partner. Mm -hmm. And in that way of thinking of God, then all of a sudden this worship, as I mentioned earlier, starts to make a lot more sense, because it's not that God is like saying, oh man, I just got to be praised, tell me how great I am. Yeah, It's uh, we're working together, and uh, God is pleased by our worship, but also, we ourselves, our own well-being can be enhanced by the worship experience.
1: Interesting. Um, I want to touch on something you said earlier, too, about uh, worship affecting God. Certainly, yeah. classical theology is that God is this unmoved mover type thing. Right. Um, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, well, that's Jesus Christ, but we've yeah. used those same words to about talk about God um what is uh someone who most resonates with process theology i think process theology has room for this idea that god is can change or is influenced but i haven't really thought about the idea of uh so much of like humanity's actions affecting god so i'm curious if you can elaborate more on what that looks like
2: yeah yeah So the idea here, and this would be true of both process and openness, folks, the idea is that God is an experiential being, just like you and I are experiential beings. Mm -hmm. And as experiential beings, our experiences are affected by others. And so uh, just like the conversation we're having right now, I'm affecting you and you're affecting me, an omnipresent being who is experiential is going to be affected by everything, That's the changing part of God or the uh, passable part of God. But process and openness folks, open and relational people, they also like to talk about God having an unchanging nature
1: yeah was,
2: so it's not like the uh, next question i was going to ask you. yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh you know it's not like god's just going to go this way and that and have mood swings and sometimes you know get angry and do evil no god's nature has been eternally the same it's loving mm-hmm. it's you know compassion etc but god's experience changes in ongoing relationship and i think that's a uh...
1: To me, I think it's pretty profound when we think about the idea that God suffers with us, Mm -hmm. feels pain with humanity. I think I've always found that profoundly unique, um, that way of thinking about God. Um, Because, again, in my mind, so much of the kind of classic theology of God is just this, again, this kind of unmoved mover who is kind of like, meh. (laughs)
2: Yep. Yep. That's exactly what it is. I mean, I think if I'm given a charitable interpretation of classical theology, I would say they were worried about having a God who would be affected by the world and uh, kind of go rogue you yeah. know uh God would say you know i'm I'm loving, but if you really push me over the edge i'm going to kick your butt, you know mm-hmm. um, Whereas, and and I can understand that worry, but if you have the view that I'm proposing that God's nature or God's essence is unchanging, immutable, you know, forever steadfast, but God's experience is changing, is affected, then you've got a relational God whose nature can't, you know, he can't go rogue, you might say.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious, too, you know, when I think about... um... I know a lot of times Christians don't want to acknowledge this—that our our culture and our context affects the way we think and believe about God and Christianity. How much do you think? Because like when I when I think of like modernism, like I can't help but see the way that modernism has shaped, you know, Christianity, you know, 150 years ago. How much do you think like this? Whether we call it postmodernism, whatever this milieu, how do I say it, milieu. <laughs> You, yeah. <laughs> you were living in has is shaping our theology today and, and then what are your thoughts on kind of that that trend?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's not only inevitable that contemporary philosophy culture contemporary ways of living it's not only inevitable that it's going to affect theology but it's also in some ways uh positive hmm. however um I'm also a Bible guy, (laughs) Um, and the vision of God that I'm presenting, I think, fits very well with the broad themes of Scripture. So, in some ways, I'm like more traditional than John Calvin and (laughs) Augustine and Aquinas. I'm more biblical in terms of my view of God. And so... I don't want to put all the emphasis upon how theology must change to the times. There's also some really profound truths in Scripture that the classic Christian tradition has ignored.
1: I mean, I think the other way we could say this, and I'm curious if this would resonate with you, is like this: if if you're saying that God is, it, is experiential and changes. How maybe I put it in this words like how God relates to us. Is it possible that God has related to humanity different at, at different points in time?
2: Sure, in the specifics, but not in the general. So, sure. uh, yeah. to put it like this God yeah. has always loved everyone at all times. Mm-hmm. However, the specific ways in which God loves are going to be different depending on the person, mm-hmm. let me uh, and, and the age. Let me um, let me illustrate this by talking about my three daughters. All three of them played soccer when they were younger, mm-hmm. and um, and let's just for the sake of this particular example say that my nature of love was fixed. I'm going to love them every single moment of their life because I just that's who I am. Yeah. But when I'm out in my backyard playing soccer with them, when they're younger. I'm going to love them in specific ways that are different than when they're older. Like, I'm going to kick the ball gently to them. You know, Uh I'm going to do certain things. But when they get in high school and they're stronger, Mm -hmm. I'm using my old man tricks. I'm giving Mm -hmm. them hips, you know, and kicking the ball hard. Not because I don't love them, it's because I do love them. And I know that that kind of soccer is going to help them improve. So, the fact that I love my, so- my daughters is unchanging. Mm-hmm. But how I express that love changes depending on who they are and how I can help them.
1: Good. Yeah, that's helpful. Good. Um, let's talk about how God relates to the future. This is one I'm curious about. Yeah. Um, uh, you, what, you use word uh, the God doesn't... Would you say God doesn't know the future how do you say that God
2: doesn't know the cer- future with certainty yeah. future
1: with certainty one thing I've heard when talking about process theology for instance is this idea that there's like these plethora of multitude of possibilities and God kind of god's omni omniscience is that God is doesn't know what's going to happen but God's aware of all the possibilities would would you describe open relational theology in a similar way or how how would it yes, that's right. Then?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's, open and relational thinkers have varying different ways of talking about this, but the one you expressed is probably the most dominant. It mm-hmm. says that God knows absolutely everything that's knowable. God is omniscient. Mm-hmm. Omniscience for God means knowing everything that happened in the past, everything that's happening in the present, and all the possibilities for the future. But because the future is a realm of possibilities and they haven't actually yet become actual, yeah. God can't know them as actual because God knows them as possible. So um, sometimes people will criticize open and relational people and they'll say, well, your God doesn't know everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we respond with, yes, God knows everything, everything that is possible to know. It's just that the future isn't possible for anyone to know until it becomes the present, till it becomes actual.
1: Yeah. And, and that aspect really, I think resonates a lot in my mind with, you know, much of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible yes. you know, what words we want to use when we think about like God having dreams for the people of Israel, like, you know, God having plans for them, wanting the best for them. And then that doesn't happen. And then God being <laughs> grieved because that didn't, what, what God wanted or hoped best for them didn't come about.
2: Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, open theism ideas are all over in the Bible. A lot of people don't know that more than forty times God is said to repent, which means to have a change of mind, yeah, but also think about all the covenants, like um mm-hmm. one of my favorite ones is the Chronicles one, where the you know God says, "If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, I will do, and He lays out certain things, yeah, but if they don't, I will hand them over to this. Well, that sounds like The future hasn't yet been decided. God's not sure what God's going to do. It's going to be dependent on how the people respond. And Mm -hmm. that's open theology right there.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, the last thing I want to ask you about is, in my mind, the hardest. So maybe nothing for you, but (laughs) prayer. And I'll just say this as, and this is not, I've said this before to folks in my church, like growing up very conservative, prayer meant one thing to me. And it was kind of like the, you know, you make a petition to God and it's kind of like, yes, no, maybe, depending on how God feels about, depending on your faith, depending on whether it's part of God's plan or not yeah. to make this happen. Um, and when I kind of left that traditional understanding of Christianity, like, uh, I seriously probably didn't pray for like eight years. Yeah. Um, what, so... I want to hear more about prayer and what it looks like here.
2: Yeah, I've got a lot to say about that. Let me, before I give you my answer, uh, do a shameless plug, okay? Yes, do. Um, I wrote a book a few years ago called God Can't that's really sold well and helped a ton of people. But one of the questions people had when they read the book or heard me speak was the prayer question. Yep. So I wrote a follow-up book that came out the summer of 2020 called Questions and Answers for God Can't, and mm. there's a whole chapter on prayer, and so what I'm about to say, you can get the developed version of yeah. that particular book. So, and
1: for, uh, for anybody <laughs> listening who's a denominational hierarchy on me, I do... St- pray in some capacity now. Thank
2: you. <laughs> well, you know, I've had several letters from pastors who read my book and said, now I can start praying again. So Whoa, it, there's yeah. lots of people who are in that boat. Yeah. So let me set it up for the listener by looking at f- three models of prayer and then giving you my view, okay? Yeah, yeah. So model number one, we'll call this the Calvinist God predestines everything model. Mm-hmm. I tell you, I can't get motivated to pray if God has already decided everything in advance. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and even my lack of motivation, God must have decided. So it makes no <laughs> sense to me to petition yeah. prayer, if that's true. Most people don't believe in that God, but there are some.
1: It's kind of like goes back to what you said about worship, like this, the narcissistic yes. God, like God just needs us to pray because God needs us, wants us to pray.
2: And God determines that yeah. we will. We have no yeah. free will but yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Um most people don't have that view. Most people have more of the second view. And it's the view that says God can single-handedly fix things, and maybe sometimes does, whether we pray or not. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with this view is it kind of gives the impression that God is on the sidelines, arms folded, saying, you know, Lauren, I'm not going to jump in and fix this unless you ask me. Yep. And then you pray, and then God says, well, you know, you're going to have to ask me 37 times. Before. Do a little better. Yeah. And that just doesn't paint a picture of a loving God, no. and it also doesn't motivate me to pray. Because if God can single-handedly fix it without my prayers, and if God is perfectly loving and a whole lot smarter than me, mm-hmm. then why the heck should I pray? Yeah. So most people, when they think about those two options, they kind of drift toward the third uh, uh, possibility and this is kind of like a god who's not really interacting who's maybe watching us from a distance like Bette midler's god yeah yeah <laughs> and really what prayer is for these people is not petitioning god in any way it's just kind of working on your own self-help kind of thing like yeah prayer, they'll say things and i get this in mainline churches when i yeah speak i was just to about to say that
1: like this is a yeah. mainline view of prayer right here the third right, option
2: yeah. yep So prayer is basically, you know, just helping your, figuring your own ideas out, helping yourself. So fourth model, this is the one that I advocate. It is, presupposes two ideas. One of them I've already mentioned, that God is actually affected by what we do. And since prayer is an action, prayer is going to have some effect on God. Second idea is that we live in an interrelated universe and my actions affect other things and other people in the universe. Mm -hmm. So a relational God in a relational universe. The third idea is that God is relating to us and all creation moment by moment by moment. That's the time part, the openness part. So that means that when Lauren prays in this particular moment, his prayer is having an effect upon God, an effect on himself, on his environment, other people perhaps, etc. And when that happens, in the next moment, God has new resources, new material, new information, new possibilities. There are new avenues for God to act in the next moment because of what happened in the previous moment, which included Lauren's prayers. Hmm. It doesn't kind of guarantee the kind of outcomes that, you know, Lauren might want because the other people in the world have free will, and I think there's indeterminacy at the quantum level, et cetera. But it does mean that what we do really has an effect upon the the future that's developing, and God is a part of that. And so I think then petitionary prayer can actually make sense. Again, it doesn't guarantee outcomes, Mm -hmm. but it provides new avenues, new possibilities, new opportunities for God in God's ongoing relationship with the world.
1: I'm wondering, like, would you say, it? I've sometimes used this language, and I wonder if it makes sense in, in how you're framing it. Like, almost as if you're putting energy out there into the universe. Is that fair?
2: That's fair. Uh, energy, I don't usually use that word. I like possibilities better. But okay. the thing I like about energy is that it suggests that there's real activity that's happening. Mm. Sometimes the word possibilities doesn't connote that as yeah. well. So yeah. uh, energies has that positive dimension to it.
1: Well, yeah, I really think that's such a more helpful version or or understanding because like you said, it's either those first two understandings, which kind of like, you know, my prayer really doesn't make a difference. It's just about keeping God happy, I guess, (laughs) or, you know, do I did enough of it? And then that third version you said, it's common in mainline or liberal traditions is like you know, I guess I got to do this for my own self development, but it doesn't really make a difference.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. I'm glad you find that helpful. And, and, um, um, actually, oh, Hey, this is really going to sound like, um, shameless promotion. Go
1: for it. Go for <laughs> it. <laughs>
2: um, well, do you have like, uh, notes that you put with your podcast? Uh,
1: unfortunately only that I'm writing down myself right now.
2: Okay. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I recently made that chapter on prayer available free to people. Uh, if they oh. sign up for my newsletter. So why don't I, I'll send you that yeah. little link and uh, you can make it available however you want. And people do I don't have figure have to out buy how to do that <laughs>
1: in my show notes, but yeah, I, I can work on that. Um, cool. Yeah. Well, this is great because I think, you know, like I said, I'm a pastor. So trying to figure out how to like re- make theology relatable people, something that I'm passionate yes. about and and I think like from my perspective at least that seems to be one of the, the biggest disconnects between church and the world is like we have a theology in so many places of Christianity that just doesn't make sense for our yeah. context and that's that's why I've come to appreciate I think this broad nature of theology as we're talking about this umbrella of open relational theology. So let's, let's take a break real
0: quick and we'll come back with some closing questions. It's not like we haven't all said it enough lately. These are unprecedented times. COVID-19 has upended the way we do life, community, and church. As church leaders, we find ourselves disoriented. Outreach, connection, cultivating a sense of team among church staff and creatives. Nothing works like it did before. Torn Curtain Arts gets it, and we're here to help. We strengthen the creative soul of churches. It's why we exist. And in these times, we have dedicated ourselves to helping churches set up live streaming solutions and assisting with live events. We also provide coaching for worship leaders, as well as substitute worship leading for both in-person and online events contact us at torncurtainarts.org and let's chat about how we can keep you connected to your creativity in this season and grow your community. All right, we're back with Dr. Thomas J. Ord.
1: And uh, Tom, you can take these uh, closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to, but okay. if, if you were a Pope for a day, what is that, what, what's the day look like? What, anything you want to do?
2: Oh, well, I would change the Catholic Church's view on women, uh, LGBTQ. Uh, I, would, uh, I would endorse Pope Francis's vision for ecology. Um, uh, but those three things come to That's mind. That's a full day saying. right there. That's a full <laughs> day.
0: <laughs>
1: a uh, historical figure or theologian you'd want to meet or bring back to life.
2: You know, I've been really influenced by the theologian John Wesley, so um, Mm. I'd I'd like to hang out with him a little bit. Cool, cool. Uh, Uh, I'll help
1: our Methodist friends here. They (laughs) might appreciate that. Uh, What do you think history will remember from this current time and place?
2: I think historians will look back on the U.S. culture and shake their heads and wonder what happened with uh, the Trump presidency.
1: Mm. Yeah, and uh, we're recording this what a week, a little bit over a week after the election, and some sense it's still a bit TBD to be honest yeah. Yeah. to be honest. Uh, last question, what do you hope what do you hope for the future of Christianity?
2: I hope that we will, I say we because I'm a Christian, we will be not only captured more deeply by a vision of divine love, but also um, work that out intellectually in ways that not only make sense in our everyday life, but also help us make sense of the biggest scientific, philosophical, and cultural issues of our time, that we would understand love to be not just personal, although that's important, Mm -hmm. but also social and even cosmic.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, now's your big chance, Tom. Plug away. Where can
2: people find oh. out more about you? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I have a personal website, which is my full name, thomasjord.com. Uh, some of the ideas we've been talking about today is in this book, God Can't, that I really wrote for a, a wide audience. So it's not like an academic book, um, and it's been uh, helpful to a lot of people. So of uh, my books, I think I would recommend that one is a good one to start with.
1: Yeah, I have a copy of his book. Uh, unfortunately, it's been on my shelf for about six months. Uh, every time I get close to it, there's a bunch of other books I want to buy. And
2: oh, get. I understand <laughs> that.
1: <laughs> so hopefully we'll get to it here eventually. But uh, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule.
2: Hey, I've enjoyed it too, Lauren. Thanks All for right. the opportunity. All right. Well, peace be with you. And with you.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. But hey, before you go, do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks, and go in peace.